people that hadn't eaten for more than 24 hours, their number one concern, and I'll never forget this because it's a real shift in my thinking, is watching people line up for the two computers we had so they could log on to Facebook and tell their family members they're okay. And I remember thinking like, right, you know, like things have changed. Like they're not interested in food, even though they haven't eaten for more than 24 hours, they just need to communicate to their friends and family that they're okay. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk about how we respond to natural disasters, and specifically how a lot of what we think we know as everyday citizens about how to deal with floods and fires and earthquakes is wrong. Or more accurately, a lot of our basic assumptions about surviving a disaster don't take into account what things are really like in the wake of a catastrophic event. The good news here is that we have more agency than we might think, and to explore how to best prepare for and respond to natural disasters, I had a chat with my old friend Daniel Neely, who is one of the more innovative thinkers in the field of emergency management at the community level. Now, Dan is actually an old travel buddy. I met him in a hostel in Egypt 18 years ago, and his story is a great example of how long-term world travel can actually enhance rather than limit your career options. Dan was in his mid-twenties at the time, and it was through his experience of travel and talking to people he met on the road that he became interested in urban planning and community development. He eventually joined the Peace Corps, where he was stationed in Honduras in the wake of Hurricane Mitch, and later he worked as a crisis management coordinator in Sri Lanka after the Boxing Day tsunami of 2004. He now works as a community resilience officer in New Zealand, where he and his colleagues help troubleshoot the ways normal people like you and I can prepare for and respond to disasters. Now in Wellington, where he works, the primary danger is earthquakes, but the advice we cover here can be applied to whichever danger prevails in your home area, be it hurricanes or floods or wildfires or tornadoes. Some of this advice involves simple improvements to the place you live, be it installing storm shutters or retrofitting your home's foundation and crawl spaces. And I put resources about this in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. But the heart of our conversation revolved around the idea of social capital, of knowing your neighbors and using local resources to take an active role in responding to a disaster in a way that goes beyond simply waiting to be rescued. Dan uses the analogy of a boxer who develops strategies not just to guard herself from punches, but to respond when the punches land in a painful way. As it happens, most people don't panic when a natural disaster hits. Instead, out of shock, they become passive and do nothing instead of banding together to solve problems. Now, when Dan mentioned this to me, it reminded me of an experience he and I had in New York years ago, right after he left for the Peace Corps, when we stumbled across a garbage fire in a brownstone stairwell in midtown Manhattan. People had noticed the fire and called 911, but in the 10 minutes it would have taken for a fire engine to arrive, the flames from the burning garbage could have caught the entire apartment building on fire, so Dan, who grew up in Arizona and was visiting New York for the first time, organized a bucket brigade using resources from a Chinese market across the street. In effect, Dan's actions helped give local people permission to solve the problem themselves before it got worse, since they were in the best position to do so. So let's listen in while Dan and I discuss how this situation, that is, interacting with your neighbors and being proactive in a dire situation, can apply to more serious disasters. Once you started issuing orders, again, you're this guy from Arizona who's suddenly bossing people around during a fire in New York. They actually were eager to help. They just didn't realize that they could. And so um, once you formed a bucket brigade in New York, not to make this whole thing about you, Dan, but it's a great example, is that they actually sort of felt pride in the fact that they helped put this fire out. And so um, 
I think that's another important thing to remember is that, well, well, one, this is a good pretext in the age of social media to actually meet your real neighbors because you could save each other's lives one day. Yeah. Um, but two, I think the more you know your neighbors, even if you just turn to your, your neighbor, Barbara, and say, Barbara, this is, a, this is a pretty scary situation. Should we do something? As opposed to just Barbara being this stranger who lives next door and you're not sure what to do. And in fact, some of the stories that came out of the flood in Houston, I think there was like a 13-year-old kid who saved a lot of people's lives simply because he knew in Houston, oh, well, this is, this is where the Carter family lives. And, and I know they have a yeah. couple kids. We should, we should check out and make sure that those kids are okay. And this is a 13-year-old who saves people's lives simply because he knew that the neighbors, uh, you know, had an, an elderly person living in that home or, or a couple of um, preschool kids. Yeah, see, I don't know that story, but that's a perfect example of that, right, is, is it really boils down to the relationships that you have, even if they're very weak relationships like that example, just, uh, you know, some kid knowing that some other people who might need assistance are down the street and gosh darn it, we should just go check on them, right? So that's, you know, that that's the piece that we really stress, you know, and, and I think our, as, you know, to your theme of maybe how we've been pitching emergency management incorrectly over the last few years, maybe, um, I think there is value in having you know a grab and go kit, and I think there's value of having a household mercy plan. Those are all things that we promote, but what we have not promoted well enough is this idea of knowing knowing your neighbors, knowing the people that you know might need that extra assistance, even on you know on your street and in your community. Um, that's the kind of stuff that's really going to save lives because you might be one of them, right? Making yourself known that you might need help is is hugely important. Yeah, or even. Yeah, again, using elderly people as an example, if you have if there's an elderly couple in a house and maybe their their kids live in other parts of the country, you know, just the being a neighbor, you know, as you're evacuating the place, knowing that they're there and coming to check on them is important. So, this could almost be an an initiative to my listeners uh is use this pretext to introduce yourself to to a few of your neighbors this week because literally it's the sort of thing where you know, grabbing your your emergency kit is one thing, but thinking on behalf of everybody on the block and sort of encouraging them to think on your behalf, because just simply because they know you're there, seems like yeah. such an important thing that can that can be a game changer in a disaster type situation. Yeah, you know, and and the reality is, it, it can be hard to go meet your neighbors, right? Um, it can be awkward. A lot of people find it a little like, ooh, a little bit, you know, a little bit. I don't know. How do I go introduce myself? One thing we always tell people is like. Use the potential threat of, you know, tornado, earthquake, flood, whatever, X, Y, Z, disaster um, as the catalyst to kind of use that as an icebreaker. Hey, I just attended this or I read about, uh, you know, that we're at, you know, the possible tornado or disaster, whatever. Um, and I just want to introduce myself. My name is Bob. Right. And most people are so happy to have a, a conversation, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you could even you could even have a picnic or a block party or something and and then just say, "Hey guys, you know, I don't want to seem like a strange weirdo prepper or anything." Um, but I just yeah. learned, but I just learned this and and here's a here's a hot dog and uh, you know, my name is is Jeff and and um, I have a couple of preschool kids and and uh, tell me about yourself. I mean, this this just seems basic humanity 101 type stuff that we forget to do sometimes. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that's a really good point is, you know, one some of the best ways to prepare for emergency are, are really non-emergency related type conversations, right? So you don't want to become, position yourself as one of those kind of uh, unique prepper type individuals. Um, 
but having a party, right? Everybody likes to go to the party. There's there's really some great initiatives in, in San Francisco through uh, the work of Daniel Holmesy and Neighborhood Empowerment Network, where they do these things called neighbor fests. And it's, it's about throwing block parties for emergency preparedness. But it's, you know, uh, the emergency preparedness is really the secondary goal. It's about meeting your neighbors. Now, um, you mentioned to me before some concrete things that you can do, community aside. Um, what are some what are some tips in terms of like keeping water on hand, um, you know, following a disaster response social media type thing that you can do to help um, have a plan in place for disaster? Sure. So, uh, you know, I think if you're going to if you're going to store anything, store water, um, you know, that's 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 certainly from an earthquake point of view. That's one of the uh, biggest kind of best items to have. Um, most people aren't going to starve in an emergency. Um, you generally, most people have some food around the house that they can eat and that will last for a while. Um, not all, not not all communities can afford that. Not all households can. Um, but on the balance, you know, have water. Um, if you're on, you know, Facebook, like your local emergency management office and your weather pages. Um, follow the advice that they give you. Uh, sign up to any alerts that are in your area. Um, there's a number of t- different types of mobile alerts that your local government or state government will offer. I'd check those out. Um, certainly have that conversation with your family about what you would do and how you'd meet up if communications were down. I think one of the things I've seen in my 10 years working in this industry is, is the role of how communications has really changed and is now considered really a lifeline. Right. Um, I remember during the Christchurch earthquakes, we brought up a bunch of people to Wellington that were affected by that from Christchurch and uh, people that hadn't eaten for more than 24 hours. Their number one concern. And I'll never forget this because it was a real shift in my thinking is watching people line up uh, for the two computers we had so they could log on to Facebook and tell their family members they're OK. And I remember thinking like, right, you know, like things have changed, like they're not interested in food, even though they haven't eaten for more than 24 hours, they just need to communicate to their friends and family that they're okay. So, um, those are some, those are some key tips. I know how to put a small fire out in your house, know how to turn off the utilities. That's another, uh, important kind of preparedness step I'd recommend. And it sounds like all of this stuff, I mean, it's not going to take up a week. Like you could knock the, it doesn't take that long to sign up for these alerts. And then you don't even have to think about it. Then you're signed up for the alerts. It doesn't take that long to just have a conversation with your family. Because again, it can be a panic situation. If you're, if you're a family of four and suddenly you can't find one person, um, just knowing that there's a plan in place for what happens. This is, it's a very simple conversation. It feels like, is it worth, is it worth having, like specific camping at home type situations where you just sort of practice. Uh... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, where you practice. That's yeah, totally right. And and like that. That's one way we we've kind of framed it uh, here in Wellington is try to make it fun, right? Instead of uh, like have a bunch of emergency supplies, pretend you had a camp at home over the weekend. No lights. You know what would you do? Turn it into a bit of a in, in, bit of a fun exercise. Um, that that helps kind of normalize it and makes you really appreciate what you do and what you you might not have on hand. This sounds like a great dad activity. You know, it's the sort of thing that the kid the kids would roll their eyes at, 
Um, but it actually it, it could be fun, and you could make some jokes at Dad's expense. But what Dad is doing is Trojan horsing an, uh, an emergency plan. And I know that you know we're talking about the types of disasters that happen. Uh, a few winters ago here in Kansas, there was an ice storm that knocked out power for like five or six days. And suddenly it was that situation that it, suddenly it's dark in the winter at 4.30 here, and you have to, you have to light candles. Suddenly your, your water isn't working, and so you have to go get pond water to help your toilet flush. And so I think we're so used to living with all of these piped-in plumbing electrical conveniences that once they're gone, it can seem jarring. But like you say, if you, if you have a little practice, even if it's just for one evening for a few hours – of having to depend on candles instead of electric lights, you know, having to um, figure out how to deal with situations to get water when the, when your tap isn't working. Um, I think that one, it prepares you for disaster, but two, it's it's just sort of a fun experiment to do. Yeah, that's right, and that's and that's uh, you know the way we've built our preparedness. We have got a thing called you know your earthquake planning guide. And we actually use behavioral psychology to develop it instead of kind of classic marketing. And the reason we did that is we really tried to uh, tap into how best to get people to work through this type of process. And one of the ways we built our, our guide for what it's worth is we've broken into you know things you can do right now the second you pick up this guide to things you can do today, this evening, over the next couple of weekends. Where you're you know we're starting with kind of the easier stuff of you know liking our Facebook page right toward. Uh, try and camping out at home over the weekend. So if anybody wants to check that out, you can check it out at uh, getprepared.nz or NZ as we would say in New Zealand. Yeah, and I'll put this stuff in the show notes. This feels like a good time to just move on to the next phase of what we were talking about, which is response. When this actually happens, uh, the response that happens, uh, and I know that this includes a psychological aspect because in, in speaking with you informally about this, you've and you can expand on this, but you've talked about how that that disaster movie idea of people screaming and running in the streets simply doesn't happen, that people are far more likely to do nothing than to run around screaming. Uh, and so I'd like to hear in general about uh, strategies for response, but I'm really interested in the psychological preparation for such a, a disaster response. During an emergency event, when our lives are threatened, especially these kind of fast onset emergencies, our cognitive function our brain usually becomes a bit impaired, right? Um, we generally will either fight, flight, or freeze. And our brains are used to making sense of the world, developing and finding patterns and trying to navigate what is familiar based on all these previous experiences that we've developed. And we do this every day to survive and kind of develop a set of routine behaviors and it's, and it's termed as intrinsic survival, right? When you are suddenly put into this very different situation, one that you haven't seen before, um, one such as like a large earthquake where uh, the, you know, the earth is moving and you might see parts of buildings falling off, a wildfire or even being lost in the forest, your brain can essentially freeze up. And in this new environment, uh, you've got a, you, you know, you really need a new set of very goal directed set of behaviors to survive. Um, because at, in this phase, right, this very short limited phase, it's all about survival. And and actually, yeah, moving but- moving your boxer analogy forward, I mean, boxers, if a boxer, f- you know, freezes and freaks out the first time he gets hit square in the face, he's not going to be a very good boxer, right? And so I'm sure that there's yeah. a lot of psychological modeling that goes into boxing or any sport. So in a sense, we're talking about psychological modeling. We're like, we're like bringing ourselves through the mental process of what things will be like just to avoid that freezing in action um, drown because you're not doing anything type situation, right? 
Yeah, and and that's right. And because your cognitive function is usually the first thing that's going to fail under any sort of duress, that becomes a real challenge. So um, there's some research by this guy named John Leach I've read about um, that he basically highlights 75% of people become bewildered by this new situation and are unable to effectively plan and escape, right? Only 15% are able to remain calm and 10% kind of classic in the classic panic in the classic movie sense. Uh, but what what really strikes me about that is 75% of the people really just freeze up. And keep it in mind that like 100% of the people in, in large cities aren't listening to the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast. Um, it feels like that's a little bit inevitable. Um, and so is it that 15% or maybe that 16 or 17% now that this podcast has gone out? Are those <laughs> Do those people have duties then to sort of help the, the 75% that are frozen and the 10%? That are panicking. I mean, how does this, given given these these percentages, um, what's the solution here to make people be more active in saving their own lives? Gosh, I don't know if I'd use the word duty. Um, you know, I think what I've read about this type of work is people people are going to react how they react, right? And 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 um, we've seen some really interesting examples of that throughout many disasters. Um, a tragic example, for example, in, in during the 9-11 attacks, right, I've read about is immediately, instead of immediately heading to the exit, once the first plane hit the building, most people who got out ended up waiting like an average of like six minutes or something before they started evacuating. And some people hung around for up to like a half hour just watching, right, because they're trying to make sense of like, hmm, that's that's new. I've never seen a building. I've never seen a plane crash into this, a building before. Um so I'm not, I'm not, I think part of that is it's, it's the brain is trying to process this information. So um, in many respects, it's, it's going to be making sure that you can survive if you are able to help people in this extreme during like, you know, and I think the, the point is during the, while the event is happening, great. Um, but, but really it's, it's enough of a challenge just to get your body to focus on survival of, of self. Now, I'm curious about one thing, because, um, and that's evacuation, because uh, I know that like a lot of advice for people who are lost in the wilderness are to shelter in place. You know, the idea that if you're lost in the wilderness and you keep trying to get yourself find, found, then A, you're going to get even more lost, and B, it's going to be harder for searchers to find you. Um, what is, you know, as, a, as an um, uh, emergency management guy, what is the basic advice post-disaster? Is it evacuate or is it shelter in place? Oh, I think that's going to be situation dependent, right? So, um, for example, in an earthquake, the last thing you want to do is as soon as the earth starts rumbling is to run outside because most buildings, for example, here here in New Zealand and, and you know, in general, um, most buildings are going to remain standing. The, the threat is right outside the door where pieces of brick and, you know, parapets and other knickknack paddywhacks are falling down and can kill people. So, you know, what, what I'm talking about, the response phase is literally while things, you know, while the event is playing out where, where survivability is, is key. Um, however, if it was an area where uh, you're at risk of tsunami, for example, then yeah, you need to get moving pretty quickly, depending on where you're at. So I think it's, it's very much a hazard and situation dependent that you have to look at what your choices are. So that probably goes back to, to, to risk reduction and preparedness is basically know what the protocols are given 
what the disaster dangers are specific to your community. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, let's talk about this. I mean, we're talking about psychological modeling and practice. How can we practice for such an eventuality? How can we model our own psychology, so to speak, to better respond to the unthinkable? Where you can, um, and we do it every day, right? Like fire evacuation drills. That's a good example. The reason we do that is you're creating muscle memory on what you should do should this type of event play out. Um, we, in, in you know, a lot of seismic cities, particularly on the west coast of the United States, I know they do drop, cover, and hold exercises. We do that as well here in New Zealand. Um, and, it's, and it's basically going through those motions uh, when the event plays out so you know what to do. If you... But there, you know, there's any number of types of events that could play out, emergency events, um, and I think part of it is even just thinking about it, uh, imagining, like, if this should happen, um, what would I do? Asking yourself, like, what would I do right now to survive? Listening to the guidance, for example, listening to the guidance when you're on a plane of what the uh, person that is giving you, you know, the airline steward or stewardess is saying, um, this is, you know, check, check your closest exit. Um, take the time to look where the closest exit is. Right. Listen to emergency managers um, and think about, you know, if there's floodwaters here, um, anticipating that you probably shouldn't be driving through those types of floodwaters or whatever the case may be. um, Try to anticipate what those what those risks are and visualize how you would respond to it is, is a good step. You know, one thing that's happening a lot in the United States now is active shooter training. Um, Mm. and, And it just strikes me right now that actually. As, as high profile as, as mass shootings have become, uh, I think statistically it's far more important to put yourself through that profile for the disaster specific to your area. So, disp- I mean, you know, I'm not knocking mass shooter training and, and how to look for certain signs, when to stay in place and when to flee during mass shooter situations. But I think it's just as or maybe even more important to know, A, exactly what your natural disaster risks are in the place where you live, and B, what your response is going to be. Uh, I would suggest to your listeners check out your probably your state emergency management office, uh, any sort of materials they have, because they're going to give you the guidance on uh, those local hazards, and hopefully there should be some guidance in their materials. And again, this, this, this sounds very bureaucratic to my listeners, but it's, this is just a few minutes of your day um, or just a, a short family activity, something that can be discussed over dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, the odds that, it, that an actual disaster is going to happen are pretty small, but 20 or 30 minutes of your life, you know, looking up this website, finding out exactly what the community plans are, uh, and then making sure that your family is – is uh, is prepared. You know, historically, we've I think our our sector has almost done a disservice by creating uh, or at least conveying that that we've got things kind of under control, right? Um, what we see in in disaster responses usually the needs outweigh the resources we can throw at those needs, and so um, we also see that communities do play a big role. And so what we've been really focusing on the last few years here in Wellington is how do we uh, better empower our communities, reset their expectations around what they need to do and how they can play an important role in the solutions from, from you know, the first few minutes after the earthquake or big hazard kind of plays out and how do we link our official support to that uh, community, those community efforts. So one of the things that we've developed 
for example, is uh, this idea of community mercy hubs, where we're working with communities across uh, the Wellington region, and we are helping them understand what assets they have in their community so that they have a better appreciation of all the resources they have, which most people real, don't realize all the resources they have, physical and social in their communities, and help them understand what types of vulnerabilities they have. And, and really, in many respects, we're just facilitating a process and they're identifying these these resources and vulnerabilities. And then we lead them through um, a number of potential, you know, kind of challenges or problems, such as how are they going to check on people? How are they going to uh, provide shelter and water and food and medical services uh, using the resource they have without any sort of government support? And we're um, doing that community by community. It's a pretty exciting initiative and it's really changed the way we are starting to practice emergency management here because it's um, a clear joining up of the bottom-up community approach and that more top-down official response. Well, I think this is this is worth uh, lingering on a little bit because after a lot of recent disasters, there's been a lot of flack thrown at FEMA for not being able to save the day. And there's uh, probably a lot of it is legitimate, but then there's also maybe something that should be unpacked in the question itself is like, why are we uh, assuming that FEMA can come in and save the day? Um, and so it sounds like down there in New Zealand, you're sort of pioneering ways to, to, to help the community initiate its own, its own uh, response, even as government agencies, the New Zealand equivalent of FEMA, is coming in and doing what they can do. Um, and so, so you used some – you're talking about resources and, and different eventualities. Give us a, a scenario maybe even in – in Wellington, New Zealand, of how communities and government agencies are working together to help prepare for these sorts of situations. Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's kind of go back to the the role of community here, right? So, one of the things that our team has really been, you know, through a lot of trial and error, finding that that sweet spot of not too much. How do you know? How do you put structure around something that is, uh, by definition, kind of unstructured, which is this organic community response, right? Where we, you get a lot of people that have no interest in in mercy preparedness uh, before an event. You know, ninety whatever five percent of society um, are not really don't really have the bandwidth to think about this stuff, or not willing to. And then suddenly, in an event, everybody's contributing, right? Or a whole bunch of members of society are contributing. Um, and so, what we try to do is really find a way to enable people to come together, have a rallying point, a pre-identified rallying point in a suburb of anywhere from three to 10,000 people within kind of 30 minutes of walking distance from their house and they can meet and start to uh, solve problems together, right? And I think that's the, the, the crux of it is people are solving problems in their everyday world, right? Coming back to that, that you know, I need to move out of my house or I need a saw to cut some wood. Um, people are now doing this in a post-event environment uh, for response and recovery. And they've got a new set of problems. Maybe they're moving at a bit of a faster pace or they're higher risk type problems, um, but their problems all the same that people are going to be working together to solve. Um, and so what we're trying to do is really enable that to move faster because we see it in every event. We're trying to move, make it more effective, more and, and work faster. And we've got kind of these guys, these community emergency hub guides relative to each suburb that that enables that. So, that so means, instead of a government response going house to house, you're saying that communities are are having specific hubs, post-disaster hubs, where they can pool their resources before there ever uh, is a government response that arrives there. 
That's right, right? And that's and that's part of that resetting of expectations. So, you know, you look back at Katrina, um, you look at uh, Harvey, you look at, you know, Puerto Rico, right? It, it, it takes a while for the official system to mobilize, especially in these really large events. And so, you know, we will be mobilizing behind the scenes, but we have started telling people, for example, you need to be prepared for a week um, and not expect any sort of assistance up to a week, right? So in that week, the best resource comes back to what are those assets in your community? We will then, as the official kind of agency, um, go in and start mobilizing our efforts to support instead of kind of override and do things to communities. We really are trying to take the mindset of how do we go in then and support those efforts and, and really augment what they're already doing. And that's, and that's a bit of a shift in thinking. Well, I think it's good to, to think about how totalizing some of these disasters are, where you, you have first responders, you have police officers and firemen and, and ambulance people, but those, if those people live in the community, they're going to be worried about their families too, you know, that, that everybody Absolutely. is affected by this. And I think there might be this instinct where when something bad happens, the, you know, the instinct might be to think, oh my God, I, I can't wait till people come and help us. And then it becomes more and more frustrating and psychologically um, draining to be waiting when in fact there's active things that can be done. There, there can be pooling of resources. There can be problem solving. There can be, oh, you, your, your, your tree has, has fallen down over, a, you know, the exit to the house. Who has a saw type situations? Is that what you're talking about with these community hub type responses? Yeah. Yep. And, and talking even about mass feeding and, and shelter, right? People, we've, you know, there's, there's plenty of examples of, of communities doing this in every event from, um, I know there's a TED talk by these two young women in Boston after the hurricane blow through there. There's, uh, you know, the, in the States, uh, what is it called? The Cajun Navy, right? Of communities self-organizing and starting to solve problems. Um, we saw, we saw this, in the Christchurch earthquake in a number of areas from uh, Sam Johnson's work in the student volunteer army to, you know, I know there's this, this one lady I talked to a while back, she, you know, said as soon as the earthquake happened, she went home, checked on her daughter and immediately went to the fire department and said, how, what can I do to help? And they said, look, we're busy. Come back tomorrow. So she waited for 24 hours, comes back. Um, what can I do to help? They said, we're busy. Come back tomorrow. So she waits another. And then finally she said, stuff it, you know, and just started self-organizing her community became you know, kind of one of the legends out of out of Christchurch because she took that initiative and just started making things happen. Right? People don't need to wait around. They they don't need to look for guidance for to the official response. Um, we can point people in the right direction and help them identify the types of challenges that they're going to have pre-event um, and help them give them some prompts. And that's what we're doing through our process is giving some uh, pre-identified strategies and. Uh, prompts for them to basically start working to address those problems in me, you know, from day one of the event. And it's interesting to think about because I think a lot of things that one can do in the wake of a disaster don't require specialized skills. You know, it, no. it, it's someone saying, oh, you need a chainsaw. Who has a chainsaw? It's someone saying, you know, that that um, responders might go house to house and make sure everybody's OK. But that's something that given the local knowledge of a neighborhood or community, that that knowledge can be much more quickly disseminated or those people can go on foot. It doesn't take specialized skill to go house to house and make sure that all the elderly and, and young people have been evacuated from a certain space. So it's, it's sort of an exciting idea that this is, this is something that can be solved at a local level. And even as the official response is kicking in, there's a lot that you can do as a smaller community. 
Yeah, and I think that's and again, you know, maybe an area where our sector with with all the best intentions in hindsight might have been doing a disservice to our communities because we've treated this type of emergency preparedness training as almost like a dark art. Like you need to go get certified and you need to go through our, you know, uh, very rigorous uh, <laughs> program before you are, you know, quote unquote capable of doing anything. And, and that's and that's just ridiculous, really. We see in every event people have never had uh, any sort of emergency training playing critical roles and important roles in the emergency response. And so I think our sector needs to, and it, it's happening, um, certainly here in New Zealand, um, where our sector is starting to say, actually, there's huge latent uh, abilities within our communities, and we just need to be figuring out ways to tap into that as soon as we can before and immediately after the event. I want to move on at, at, at a certain point uh, to recovery, because oftentimes that's the forgotten part of this process, is that once everybody's lives are saved, that you do have to go home and, and either clean up or, or find a, a way to make your home livable again. But is there any ground that we haven't covered before we move on to recovery? Any ground we haven't covered in terms of response? I think one one thing, just going actually going back a little bit, I really want to emphasize around preparedness is um, it's not just about household preparedness. It's also about business preparedness, right? So um, one thing I'd really, really encourage you to do is does your business have a business continuity plan or I think in the States are called continuity of operation plans or something like that. Um, but basically how is your business going to uh, not only just respond to the event, um, but respond to the potential disruptions that could occur and probably would occur um, in, in a disaster event. Really, really encourage everybody to, to look at that, whether you are a private sector organization or even more importantly, well, not more importantly, but uh, equally as important, uh, a community service organization, because a lot of those community service organizations play a huge role in response and recovery. And we need those folks to make sure that they're able to operate the best they can. That's a great point. You know, that I think I, I keep modeling in my head people being at home when a given disaster happens. But not just in terms of, of continuity with the business, but actually if a disaster strikes while, during the workday, then that's a whole other set of responses, a whole other set of engagement and leadership and, um, you know, um, resilience, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, so should businesses uh, uh, have their own plans in place, or is that just uh, paranoid over-preparedness? No, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's actually really critical and increasingly critical. Um, we saw, and, and put those, you know, not only have those business continuity plans in place, but put as much of those documents uh, as you feel comfortable with online. One of the things that we saw during the Christchurch earthquake so many businesses were unable to access their business, you know, their their place of where they practice that business, where they traded, uh, because the building was unsafe to go into. And consequently, all their files, all their, you know, everything that related to business was in one location. And uh, it proved to be, you know, as you can imagine, hugely challenging for some of those smaller businesses. Um, so what, where you can put information online, there's a lot of good online storage options nowadays for that. Um, and just give some thought to how are you going to look after your staff? Make sure that uh, all of your staff, or at least you know, key members of your staff, understand what that business continuity plan is. Um, you know, the worst thing is it resides with the business owner or just one person. Um, and and make sure you know, practice some of those response type drills. Right, you're looking after your staff's safety and well-being. Um, can't stress that enough. 
That's another thing that completely didn't occur to me. I mean, until you started talking, you know, the idea that you're sort of backing up, you know, you're, you're putting a, 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 a individual would put their information in the cloud, you know, in case uh, the flood comes through and wipes out their laptop. Uh, but from a business level, that actually infects the employment of a lot of people. And again, the odds are, are small that um, a given disaster is going to happen, but it feels like a fairly simple contingency plan can save your job, basically, uh, if your business is prepared to, to keep functioning after physical things happen to, to say, the office where, where work happens. That's right. Yeah, it's 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 it's. Uh, and it can be challenged, particularly for small business owners, right? Because, you know, they're working so much and they've got so many other priorities. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we've, we've developed is a really simple business continuity planning guide that's just really stripped down, targeted to those small business owners, because we know a lot of business continuity plans are, are kind of, you know, complex. Um, so if you can even just do the basics, uh, putting stuff online, having an idea of, you know, key list of your suppliers, key list of customers, able to communicate things, being able to focus on a couple key products and services that are going to keep your business alive during that disruption period. Um, some really, you know, we've got some really stripped down, simple guidance on our website. Um, I really encourage business owners to, to every, every type of business owner to really make that investment. Yeah. And it feels like uh, you don't even have to own a air quotes business to be thinking about this sort of thing. You could you could be a, a university professor or um, someone who is 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 maybe a, a contractor or some or something. But just just spending you know just taking a short amount of time to think about what happens if suddenly um, an entire environment is not accessible for for a long period of time and you have to continue to do your your job basically uh, in in different circumstances. So that's, so that's great to think about it. A- any other yeah. things before we move on to recovery itself? In a way, this sort of dovetails with recovery because yeah, um, you know, just the idea continuity, I guess, is a good word. You know, the idea that you're preparing your home or your business so that you're not just alive, but you're moving back and 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 living a, a rich and prosperous life as soon as possible after the unthinkable happens. So let's talk about recovery. Okay. So yeah, for me, recovery is probably the most interesting aspect of this field because so much can happen during this phase. If we were to come back to that boxer analogy, recovery is the phase where, you know, you've basically been kind of pummeled and you're lying on the floor of the boxing ring, you know, the fight's over. Um, you might be in the hospital for some sort of intensive surgery to keep you alive. And if you survive, it's going to be some inevitable long-term rehabilitation that's going to be required to get your body working again. Um, and your body might not ever function like it did in the past, right? You might be blind in one eye and um, have to adapt to a new set of skills to navigate the world, um, which can make you, you know, stronger, weaker, it just all depends. And and that's what it's like for individuals in, in cities when they've experienced a large disaster. Um, the immediate focus on survival is paramount, right? That's that response phase that we've talked about. Um, but when the dust settles and you're in for this new long walk toward this new world, you've got to really focus on adapting to this new environment to keep going. Does the individual have any agency in these situations, moving back to uh, a block that has been devastated by a flood or an earthquake, trying to make sense of, of, of possessions and the, and the structural integrity of houses and things like this? What can an, an individuals do um, to maximize uh, the recovery from these sorts of events? Yeah, that's a great question, and and it's it's actually we've, there's you know again some great 
uh, research and evidence out there by folks like Lori Johnson, Scott Miles, that really demonstrate if you are going to stay, you need to get involved, right? Your city needs to find ways uh, for you to get involved because that actually, when when you have that sense of agency and you're contributing to the recovery efforts, it actually has a lot of flow on positive effects for your own well-being. It helps shape uh, the city. So anything that you're doing, whether it's small little organic type activities, uh, community activities that you know are just kind of pop-ups uh, to long-term policy decisions, uh, find a way to get involved. So so basically, instead of complaining, you you do what you. Uh, you organize neighbors, you, you talk about, you, you get to know city officials. Or do you have any concrete examples of what what some good individual responses have been in this situation to, to make you feel a little bit less helpless? Yeah, I think all, I think, you know, all, all those are relevant, right? Complaining has its place. Um, and, you know, lobbying city officials, uh, you know, that, that role, again, of social capital is going to be really important. So the more people you can get behind any sort of initiatives is going to, is you know, is going to have hopefully a positive impact on what happens in your city, in your community. Um, those are all important things that just, you know, find, absolutely lobby your local government um, because ultimately your local government is, is, is the one um, that is going to be there before, during and after, right? FEMA might come in, um, but even FEMA is starting to push back on that now, as I understand it, and putting that role to local government saying, you know, you've got a greater responsibility here um, this is your, you know, you're, you're managing this event. And I under, as I understand, they're, they're starting to push uh, some of those responsibilities down. And, and I think that's, quite frankly, right and proper. What can you leave us with in terms of, um, I mean, this, we've gotten a lot of information. Uh, it's useful, but maybe kind of scary to imagine these worst case scenarios. Uh, what can you do to sort of assuage people's concerns yet keep them prepared in terms of mindset for when and if this type of thing happens? Yeah, it's, you know, I think be aware of the type, come back to our opening part of our conversation, right? Be aware of the types of hazards and risks that you face in your community and take some simple steps, um, have some conversations, uh, and know a few neighbors, you know, don't, I, I certainly don't lose sleep over this stuff at night, and I work in the industry. Um, I actually encourage people to don't become preppers. I think that it sends a, a weird signal both <laughs> to your friends and family, but it's just it's it's un, it's largely I don't think uh, necessary. Um, do some basic take the basic steps of of preparedness and mitigation, and get involved in your community. If I were to sum it up, you know, at the end of the day, throw a block party. Right, that you know, have, that's that'd be probably the biggest uh, preparedness step I'd I'd encourage people to do. Why why stockpile ammunition and freeze dried food when you could just have a barbecue? Yeah, man. Well said. Well said. It's not going to be The Walking Dead. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including all kinds of useful links about disaster planning and psychology, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by myself and Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.